Section 30 of Waverley, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Waverley, or Tis Sixty Years Since, Volume 2 by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter 65 More Explanation with the first dawn of day old janet was scuttling about the house to wake the baron who usually slept sound and heavily i must go back he said to waverley to my cove will you walk down the glen with me they went out together and followed a narrow and entangled footpath which the occasional passage of anglers or woodcutters had traced by the side of the stream on their way the baron explained to waverley that he could be under no danger in remaining a day or two at tully Villan, and even in being seen walking about it if he used the precaution of pretending that he was looking at the estate as agent or surveyor for an english gentleman who designed to be purchaser with this view he recommended to him to visit the bailey who still lived at the factor's house called little villan about a mile from the village though he was to remove at next term stanley's passport would be an answer to the officer who commanded the military and as to any of the country people who might recognize waverley the baron assured him he was in no danger of being betrayed by them i believe said the old man half the people of the barony know that their poor old lad is somewhere hereabout for i see they do not suffer a single bairn to come here a bird nesting a practice wilt when i was in full possession of my power as baron i was unable totally to inhibit nay i often find bits of things in my way that the poor bodies god help them leave there because they think they may be useful to me i hope they will get a wiser master and as kind a one as i was a natural sigh closed the sentence but the quiet equanimity with which the baron endured his misfortunes had something in it venerable and even sublime there was no fruitless repining no turbid melancholy he bore his lot and the hardships which it involved with a good-humoured though serious composure and used no violent language against the prevailing party i did what i thought my duty said the good old man and questionless they are doing what they think theirs it grieves me sometimes to look upon these blackened walls of the house of my ancestors but doubtless officers cannot always keep the soldier's hand from depredation and spoilsy and gustave adolphus himself as you may read in colonel Monroe his expedition with the worthy scotch regiment called mackay's regiment did often permit it indeed i have myself 
seen as sad sights as Tully Villan, now is when I served with the Marshal Duke of Berwick. To be sure, we may say with Vigilus Morrow, Fumus Troves, and there's the end of an old sang. But houses and families and men have a stood long enough when they have stood till they fall with honour, and now I have gotten a house that is not unlike a domus ultima. They were now standing below a steep rock. We poor Jacobites, continued the baron, looking up, are now like the conies in holy scripture, which the great traveller, Poke called Jeboa, a feeble people that make our abode in the rocks. So fare you well, my good lad, till we meet at Janet's in the evening, for I must get into my Patmos, which is no easy matter for my old stiff limbs. With that he began to ascend the rock, striding with the help of his hands from one precarious footstep to another till he got about halfway up, where two or three bushes concealed the mouth of a hole resembling an oven, into which the baron insinuated, first his head and shoulders, and then, by slow gradation, the rest of his long body, his legs and feet finally disappearing, coiled up like a huge snake entering his retreat or a long pedigree introduced with care and difficulty into the narrow pigeon-hole of an old cabinet. Waverley had the curiosity to clamber up and look in upon him in his den, as the lurking place might well be termed. Upon the whole he looked not unlike that ingenious puzzle called a reel in a bottle, the marvel of children and of some grown people too, myself for one, who can neither comprehend the mystery how it has got in or how it is to be taken out. The cave was very narrow, too low in the roof to admit of his standing, or almost of his sitting up, though he made some awkward attempts at the latter posture. His sole amusement was the perusal of his old friend Titus Livius, varied by occasionally scratching Latin proverbs and texts of scripture with his knife on the roof and walls of his fortalice, which were of sandstone. As the cave was dry and filled with clean straw and withered fern, it made, as he said, coiling himself up with an air of snugness and comfort which contrasted strangely with his situation, unless when the wind was due north a very passable guide for an old soldier neither as he observed was he without sentries for the purpose of reconnoitring davy and his mother were constantly on the watch to discover an avert danger and it was singular what instances of address seemed dictated by the instinctive attachment of the poor simpleton where his patron's safety was concerned with janet edward now sought an interview he had recognized her at first sight as the old woman who had nursed him during his sickness after his delivery 
from gifted Gilfillan. The hut also, although a little repaired and somewhat better furnished, was certainly the place of his confinement, and he now recollected on the common moor of Tullyfalan the trunk of a large decayed tree called the Trysting tree, which he had no doubt was the same at which the Highlanders rendezvoused on that memorable night. All this he had combined in his imagination the night before, but reasons which may probably occur to the reader prevented him from catchising Janet in the presence of the Baron. He now commenced the task in good earnest, and the first question was, who was the young lady that visited the hut during his illness? Janet paused for a little, and then observed that to keep the secret now would neither do good nor ill to anybody. It was just a lady that hasn't her equal in the world, Miss Rose Bridwine. Then Miss Rose was probably also the author of my deliverance, inferred Waverley, delighted at the confirmation of an idea which local circumstances had already induced him to entertain. I what will, Mr. Waverley, and that was she ain, but so, so angry and affronted was she a been, poor thing, if she had thought ye had been ever to ken a word about the matter, for she gard me speak a Gaelic when ye was in hearing, to Marky Troll we were in the Highlands. I can speak it well enough, for my mother was a Highland woman. A few more questions now brought out the whole mystery respecting Waverley's deliverance from the bondage in which he left Carvenwreck. Neither did music sound sweeter to an amateur than the drowsy tautology with which old Janet detailed every circumstance thrilled upon the ears of Waverley. But my reader is not a lover, and I must spare his patience, by attempting to condense, within reasonable compass, the narrative which old Janet spread through a harangue of nearly two hours. When Waverley communicated to Fergus the letter he had received from Rose Bradwardine by Davy Gillespie, giving an account of Tully Volan being occupied by a small party of soldiers, that circumstance had struck upon the busy and active mind of the chieftain. Eager to distress and narrow the posts of the enemy, desirous to prevent the establishing a garrison so near him, and willing also to oblige the baron, for he often had the idea of marriage with Rose floating through his brain, he resolved to send some of his people to drive out the redcoats and to bring Rose to Glenogwich. But just as he had ordered Evan with a small party on this duty, the news of Cope's having marched into the highlands to meet and disperse the forces of the Chevalier ere they came to a head, obliged him to join the standard with his whole forces. He sent to order Donald Bean to attend him, but that cautious freebooter, who well understood the value of a separate command, instead of joining, sent various apologies 
which the presence of the times compelled Fergus to admit as current, though not without the internal resolution of being revenged on him for his procrastination, time and place convenient. However, as he could not amend the matter, he issued orders to Donald to descend into the low country, drive the soldiers from Tully Voilan, and, paying all respect to the mansion of the baron, to take his abode somewhere near it, for protection of his daughter and family, and to harass and drive away any of the armed volunteers or small parties of military which he might find moving about the vicinity. As this charge formed a sort of roving commission, which Donald proposed to intercept in the way most advantageous to himself, as he was relieved from the immediate terrors of Fergus, and as he had, from former secret service, some interest in the councils of the Chevalier, he resolved to make hay while the sun shone. He achieved without difficulty the task of driving the soldiers from Tully Voulion, but although he did not venture to encroach upon the interior of the family or to disturb Miss Rose, being unwilling to make himself a powerful enemy in the Chevalier's army, for well he knew the Baron's wrath was deadly. Yet he set about to raise contributions and exactions upon the tenantry, and otherwise to turn the war to his own advantage. Meanwhile he mounted the white cockade, and waited upon Rose with a pretext of great devotion for the service in which her father was engaged, and many apologies for the freedom he must necessarily use for the support of his people. It was at this moment that Rose learned by open-mouthed fame, with all sorts of exaggeration, that Waverley had killed the smith at Carnbrecon, in an attempt to arrest him, and had been cast into a dungeon by Major Melville of Carnbrecon, and was to be exalted by martial law within three days. In the agony which these tidings excited, she proposed to Donald Bean the rescue of the prisoner. It was the very sort of service which he was desirous to undertake, judging it might constitute a merit of such nature as would make amends for any peccadilloes which he might be guilty of in the country. He had the art, however, pleading all the while duty and discipline, to hold off until poor Rose, in the extremity of her distress, offered to bribe him into the enterprise with some valuable jewels which had been her mother's. Donald Bean, who had served in France, knew, and perhaps overestimated, the value of these trinkets, but he also perceived Rose's apprehensions of its being discovered that she had parted with her jewels for Waverley's liberation. Resolved this scruple should not part him and the treasure, he voluntarily offered to take an oath that he would never mention Miss Rose's share in the transaction, and foreseeing convenience in keeping the oath, and no probable advantage in breaking it, he took the engagement, in order, as he told his lieutenant, to deal handsomely by the young lady, 
in the only mode and form which, by a mental passion with himself, he considered as binding. He swore secrecy upon his drawn dirk. He was the more especially moved to this act of good faith by some attentions that Miss Bradwardine showed to his daughter Alice, which, while they gained the heart of the mountain damsel, highly gratified the pride of her father. Alice, who could now speak a little English, was very communicative in return for Rose's kindness, readily confined to her the whole papers respecting the intrigue with Gardiner's regiment, of which she was the depository, and as readily undertook, at her instance, to restore them to Waverley without her father's knowledge, for they may oblige the bonny young lady and the handsome young gentleman, said Alice, and what use has my father for a wind bit so scarted caper? The reader is aware that she took an opportunity of executing this purpose on the eve of Waverley's leaving the glen. How Donald executed his enterprise, the reader is aware, but the expulsion of the military from Tully Verloin had given alarm, and while he was laying in wait for Gilfillian, a strong party such as Donald did not care to face. He was sent to drive back the insurgents in their turn, to encamp there and to protect the country. The officer, a gentleman and a disciplinarian, neither introduced himself on Miss Bradwardine, whose unprotected situation he respected, nor permitted his soldiers to commit any breach of discipline. He formed a little camp upon an eminence near the house of Tullyfoyline, and placed proper guards at the passes in the vicinity. This unwelcome news reached Donald Bean Lean as he was returning to Tullyfoylan. Determined, however, to obtain the jurdan of his labour, he resolved, since approach to Tullyfoylan was impossible, to deposit his prisoner in Janet's cottage, a place the very existence of which could hardly have been suspected even by those who had long lived in the vicinity, unless they had been guided thither, and which was utterly unknown to Waverley himself. This effected, he claimed and received his reward. Waverley's illness was an event which deranged all their calculations. Donald was obliged to leave the neighbourhood with his people, and to seek more free course for his adventures elsewhere. At Rose's entreaty he left an old man, a herbalist, who was supposed to understand a little of medication, to attend Waverley during his illness. In the meanwhile new and fearful doubts started in Rose's mind. They were suggested by old Janet, who insisted that a reward having been offered for the apprehension of Waverley, and his own personal effects being so valuable, there was no saying to what breach of faith Donald might be tempted. In an anger of grief and terror, Rose took the daring resolution of explaining to the prince himself the danger in which Mr. Waverley stood, judging that, both as a politician and a man of honour and humanity, Charles Edward would interest himself to prevent his falling into the hands of the opposite party. This letter she at first thought of sending anonymously, but
but naturally feared it would not in that case be credited. She therefore subscribed her name, though with reluctance and terror, and consigned it in charge to a young man who, at leaving his farm to join the Chevalier's army, made it his petition to her to have some sort of credentials to the adventurer, from which he hoped to obtain a commission. The letter reached Charles Edward on his descent to the lowlands, and aware of the political importance of having it supposed that he was in correspondence with the English Jacobites, he caused the most positive orders to be transmitted to Donald Bean Lean, to transmit Waverley, safe and uninjured, in person or effects, to the governor of Doon Castle. The three-booter durst not disobey, for the army of the prince was now so near him that punishment might have followed. Besides, he was a politician as well as a robber, and was unwilling to cancel the interest created through former secret services by being refractory on his occasion. He therefore made a virtue of necessity, and transmitted orders to his lieutenant to convey Edward to Doom, which was safely accomplished in the mode mentioned in a former chapter. The governor of Doom was directed to send him to Edinburgh as a prisoner, because the prince was apprehensive that Waverley, if set at liberty, might have resumed his purpose of returning to England without affording him an opportunity of a personal interview. In this, indeed, he acted by the advice of the chieftain of Glenogwich, which whom it might be remembered the chevalier communicated upon the mode of disposing of Edward, though without telling him how he came to learn the place of his confinement. This, indeed, Charles Edward considered as a lady's secret, although Rose's letter was couched in the most cautious and general of terms, and professed to be written merely from motives of humanity and zeal for the prince's service, yet she expressed so anxious a wish that she should not be known to have interfered, that the chevalier was induced to suspect the deep interest which she took in Waverley's safety. This conjecture, which was well founded, led, however, to false inreferences. For the emotion which Edward displayed on approaching Flora and Rose at the ball of Holyrood was placed by the chevalier to the account of the letter, and he concluded that the baron's views about the settlement of his property, or some such obstacle, thwarted their mutual inclinations. Common fame, it is true, frequently gave Waverley to Miss MacIver, but the prince knew that common fame is very prodigal in such gifts, and watching attentively the behaviour of the ladies towards Waverley, he had no doubt that the young Englishman had no interest with Flora, and was beloved by Rose Bradwardine. Desirous to bind Waverley to his service, and wishing also to do a kind and friendly action, the prince next assailed the baron on the subject of settling his estate upon his daughter. Mr. Bradwardine acquiesced, but the consequence was that Fergus was immediately induced to prefer his double suit for a wife and an earldom. 
which the prince rejected in the manner we have seen. The Chevalier, constantly engaged in his own multiplied affairs, had not hitherto sought any explanation with Waverley, though often meaning to do so, but after Fergus's declaration he saw the necessity of appearing neutral between the rivals, devoutly hoping that the matter which now seemed fraught with the seeds of strife might be permitted to lie over till the termination of the expedition when on the march to derby fergus being questioned concerning his quarrel with waverley alleged as the cause that edward was desirous of retracting the suit which he had made to his sister the chevalier plainly told him that he had himself observed mrs MacIver's behaviour to waverley and that he was convinced fergus was under the influence of a mistake in judging of waverley's conduct who he had every reason to believe was engaged to miss bradwardine the quarrel which ensued between edward and the chieftain is i hope still in the remembrance of the reader these circumstances will serve to explain such points of our narrative as according to the custom of story-tellers we deemed it fit to leave unexplained for the purpose of exciting the reader's curiosity when janet had once finished the legend facts to this narrative waverley was easily enabled to apply the clue which they afforded to other mazes of the labyrinth in which he had been engaged to rose bradwardine then he owed the life which he now thought he could willingly have laid down to serve her a little reflection convinced him however that to live for her sake was more convenient and agreeable and that being possessed of independence she might share it with him either in foreign countries or in his own the pleasure of being allied to a man of the bower's high worth and who was so much valued by his uncle sir everard was also an agreeable consideration had anything been wanting to recommend the match his absurdities which had appeared grotesquely ludicrous during his prosperity seemed in the sunset of his fortune to be harmonized and assimilated with the noble features of his character so as to add peculiarity without exciting ridicule his mind occupied with such projects of future happiness edward sought little boulogne the habitation of mr duncan mcwebley end of chapter sixty five recording by elaine webb bristol england